This is a podcast by One Life Christian Church in Baldwin, New York. We pray that the following podcast would encourage you, build you up in the gospel, and lead you closer to Jesus. We remind you that these are simply tools to help you in your walk and ask that you still look for a local church to attend and serve in. Welcome to the living room. So glad to see many of you in the church today, and we're going to jump right into it. Uh, We're going to kick it right off. We are in a brand new series, right, the letter to the churches. We're looking at the book of Revelation, and last week, Pastor Isaac had the privilege of uh, speaking on love, and guess what the topic that he gave me today for us, the church, which is suffering. So we're going to have a long, fun afternoon, it's going to be afternoon soon, on suffering. So I will gladly take that. So, uh, but anyway, this is what I want to throw at you this morning. Do you believe, if I were to tell you that the Bible and the Spirit of God can equip you necessary to live boldly and courageously in a world that is constantly plagued with fear and suffering and uncertainty? Do you believe that? Would you hold true to that? See, the book of Revelation that we have been diving into, yes, the book is filled with much prophecies and it speaks a lot of the end times itself. But for the early church during that time, this book was actually a book that was to encourage their hearts when suffering and persecution was knocking at their doors. So yes, I I agree with the prophecies and the end times that we dive in and that we wrestle and we talk about. But we see, if anything, for this early church that this letter and and the book itself was called to encourage them while they're faced with death knocking at their door. And how do we know this? We have proof. Actually, what I like to call, and I I told Pastor Isaac before this, I like to call this guy one of the gangsters of the faith. Because this man who was a pastor and a bishop of Smyrna from the early days of the church, and his name is Polycar. And what's so important and significant of this man is that this man is actually somewhat connected to Apostle John, who we believe maybe who wrote this letter. So we're talking about early, early moments of Christianity even being birthed itself. So this man itself, you got to understand the context of what's going on is that everyone there was called to worship and call Caesar as king and lord. But Polycar, he said, no, I have a king. His name is Jesus. And look what he says. He says these words as a crowd of people were surrounding around him because they were about to put him to death for believing in this man named Jesus and not Caesar. He said this to everyone that was standing there in this huge coliseum, I think, at that time. He said, 86 years have I have been his servant. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And this is something interesting and quite remarkable, I think, for us to understand and, and to see of the story of Polycarp. The thing is, while they said, wait, you calling Jesus your king? Well, how about this? We are going to throw you into a pit of fire. We're going to throw you a pit of fire. We're going to burn you and we're going to kill you that way. And the minute that he was, what fire was, looks like it was going to be consumed in and around him, can I tell you this? His body itself was not even burned. 
And there was some great witness even to that itself to know that this man who declared who Jesus is at this moment, his body at that moment was not even being burned as the fire was going around him. So the leaders at that time came and they stabbed Polycar and he died at that moment. But my question is this, what made him and many other early Christians so different in the midst of suffering and persecution that knocked at their doors? I think Jesus has the answer for us that we can get to look at this morning. And that if it is, look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. So if you have a Bible, your app, look into it. We're going to read it together. Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's the word of the Lord. So church, this early church of Smyrna, I think they held a key that I think it's important for us, even as a church, to be fearless in a world that is constantly gripped by much fear and anxiety and worry. And I think what we could look at the core of this is, is this, that I think that we could be a beacon of hope for all of us, is to actually return to the roots and figure out what was it in this church that made them to be fearless in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the types of persecution that we feel. So here's what I want to throw at you this morning so that we get to wrestle. How can the church thrive fearlessly in a fearful world? Because I truly believe this. A scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. So three things that I want to take away in this text is this. By one, embracing the kingdom values, meaning we believe in God's kingdom. Two is by finding solace in a comforting God during our times of pain. And three is by trusting in a God who keeps his promises. To give you some context as far as the city of Smyrna itself, just as we mentioned last week, it is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a great city that was established many, many years ago. And there was a time in its city's history that it was destroyed and ruined and it was brought back to life. So think about this. This is a city that has experienced death and literally had to be brought back to life. And even in the city itself, it was a city that was known to, to had a devote. Uh, devotion to Rome itself. So they had many various different gods. They even say that a lot of philosophers even came out of here. One of them to be Homer himself. So in the city itself, it was not just, it had all these ideas and thoughts. It was a city that was also very beautiful. They call this the city, they call this the crown city or the crown of Asia because the region itself was actually shaped into a crown. So Smyrna was also a wealthy city. It was filled with rich urbanites. 
So it was rich in that because they had this, the, the, where it was located, the port, to be able to sell myrrh at that time. So all of this itself, the myrrh that was used to prepare for the dead bodies that were there because there was what we read in this passage, a lot of persecution that was going on. So all of this described what Smyrna is in the city. How did the church continue to move forward? What words did Jesus give to this church in this letter to encourage them as they face so much suffering? Let's look at my first thing. That's by embracing kingdom values. And what do I mean by that? If you look at the text very closely, you'll see what Jesus does quite uniquely. And he does this throughout actually all of, all of scripture and all of the Bible. He basically takes the world's values, and with the power of the gospel, he reverses those values. All right? So the world has its own values, but God despises those values, and he reverses it to show of his values, which is actually of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? Look at them back in the text, verse 9, right? Jesus says, you think you're poor, but you're rich. Right? I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. And he goes on to say, he says that the synagogues think that they're serving the Lord, but they're actually serving Satan. Right? The slander of those who say that they are Jews are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He continues in verse 8. Jesus says, people think that I'm dead, but I'm really alive. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, right, the words of the first and of the last who died and came to life. Verse 10. Jesus says, those who are faithful unto death get, what? The crown of life. Verse 10 says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And I hope you see why this is significant even for us. And why this is important, because all the letters actually have this central theme of this reversal of taking the values of the world and what they believe and actually say, no. God's saying, my kingdom has a different value that you could stand on. Think about this. Jesus says, you think you're poor, but really, you think, you, you think you're poor, but you're really rich. He's saying that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. And I just love what God does in and through all of the Bible, all of the scriptures. And I think the Christians at this time, they understood what the kingdom of God is all about. He understood that. They captured that. Because they stood not on the value of the way how the world understands suffering, but the way how the kingdom is established. And when suffering comes, they knew how to respond. Now, to truly understand this, Isaac even touched this early on where he said in the first letter that the church lost its first love, right? When the church lost its love, first love, it was so fixated on the systems and the forms of how we do worship instead of actually thinking about more of the kingdom of God. And this is extremely important because this allowed for the church to live fearlessly in a world that is constantly gripped by fear, Think about all the different fears that we come across each and every day. And I'm going to make a bold statement, which might not even sit well with maybe some of you. Or it might. Jesus didn't come to establish Christianity. He came to establish a kingdom. That is a big difference. And I'll flesh that out, what I mean by that. 
Because there's a ton of religions that are out there. But I feel like they always pour, point back inwardly. Here's what religion speaks and says of. Religion says that it's a system of faith and worship that puts the weight on the system. Whereas religion is a system in how we worship and how we do things. Whereas a kingdom is a combination of two words. The king's dominion. So a kingdom is, not, is just the dominion of the king. So if religion centers around the system of worship, then a kingdom centers around the king. This is why it's so radical. When the gospel was sent forth uh, to all the nations, we see that it wasn't about religion. It was about a kingdom because it was about a person. And that king is Jesus. It was always about him. It was always centered around him. You see, religion is so focused on the actions such as the do's and don'ts. And that has turned people off from Christianity because it magnifies so much of ourselves and our ideas, our emotions, our thoughts, our opinions. Instead of being able to magnify on the person of Jesus and looking at how good he is. That's what the kingdom is all about. So what made this church so fearless? When all around them were falling apart and when death was constantly knocking at their doors daily. I think it's this. The thing that the world thinks are actually blessings received without God. God would turn them into curses. And the things that the world thinks of as curses received with God will actually turn it into blessings. Let me give you an example of this. Jesus here says, though you are poor, he continues to say you are rich. And I actually believe Jesus is quoting himself in this. How do I know this? Let's look at Luke chapter 20, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, which actually talks about the values that we need to stand for in the kingdom of God. And this is the Beatitudes. So let me read this with you. Luke 6, 20 to 26. <clears throat> Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when, you, when people hate you and when you, they exclude you and arrive and spawn you for your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so the fathers did to the prophets. 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's look at two things that Jesus kind of summarizes in this passage. There's two categories. We'll call this the good things. And the good things in the world that we see is power. Comfort, success, recognition. Who doesn't want any of those things, right? And then Jesus takes it and shows another thing, another category. He calls them the hard things, which includes weakness instead of power, deprivation rather than comfort, loss instead of success, and rejection in place of recognition. See, in the world's perspective, having the good things is seen as essential for a meaningful life. We think this is all we need. While the hard things, the world would say, avoid it completely. 
However, Jesus gives a whole different perspective. He said, woe to you who have the good things. And blessed are you who have the hard things. But that's it. This implies that good things, when pursued without God, can turn into curses. Think about it. For instance, if someone values beauty, success, or worth more than God, it could lead to self-worth, constant comparison, and others, and various different anxieties. What do I mean? What if, if you have... What if you put everything on just your beauty itself and you say your beauty is much more important than God himself? That means you will constantly think you will find meaning and self-worth and your happiness just by your beauty. And it will only eat you up alive because you will constantly try to compare yourself and you won't even realize that ageism will eventually catch up to you. And this will catch you to worry. How about success and money? It will, if, if that is all you want and God is not even in that at all, it will drive you to the grounds to work so hard where you're constantly worrying about your finances, worrying about what you'll eat, what will happen. Here's the thing. Good things without God turn into curses, church. As one writer put it, when you live for riches and it's more important to you than God, then that's all you are. You don't really have an identity. You're a rich man or nothing. Now, if you lose your riches, and if that's all that you place your identity and everything in, it may feel like I'm trying to satisfy something in my soul, but you can't find it. It may feel like it's hell. But Jesus teaches that true happiness and freedom comes from not being dependent on those good things. So as a Christian, when those good things do come into our lives, we can rejoice. Knowing that they don't define our worth and happiness. And when hard things come, we don't rejoice in the suffering itself. But in the knowledge that God will ultimately remove suffering. As is revealed in this book of Revelation. So why does Jesus here say blessed are you. Right? Blessed are you who have hard things. Does that mean that we seek after the things that are hard? No, as a Christian, our view uh, of the good and the hard things are very different from the world and how they think and how they capture it. It's because of this. Because Jesus is our supreme love. You see, we can rejoice when good things come into our lives because we are not based on them. So even if the stock market was going to crash, it's okay. We know but because we have freedom in Christ. So when hard things come, how then do we rejoice in that way? God doesn't love suffering. God takes away suffering. So in the end of Revelation, that's what's, what we show here. He takes away the suffering. So how do we rejoice? I think there's another category that Jesus mentions. So the good things, such as power, success, recognition, and comfort, the world will say, yes, go for it. It will give you a meaningful life. The hard things, such as loss, separation, weakness, and rejection, avoid it at all costs. But for us who are believers in Christ, we have another view. And that view is the best things. That is God's love. That's God's glory. That's God's holiness. That's God's beauty. That's Jesus telling us the way to the best thing is not through the good things. It is through the hard things to the road that the best thing does not go through. The good things it goes through are actually through the hard things. See, that is the theme of the Bible. 
all out throughout scripture. It is the same thing over and over again. Listen, if you only get the good things, you rest in them. Right? You rest in them. And if you rest totally in them, you will always be enslaved to it. Because you're trying to satisfy something that you're not going to find satisfaction in. And you're going to be stuck there. But the hard things that take us away from the good things will always drive us towards the best things. And that's towards God. And that's key. Because as Christians, the reality is you're going to suffer and you're going to be excluded from the world. But we could always tell others of who actually loves us. And that is God. So when you go through the hard things, like rejection of the world or whatever it is, you turn to God in prayer and in worship and you feel the love of God. Because the hard things would drive us always to the best things, and that is God. And this is the theme of the Bible. See, God despises the values of the world and he reverses it with the gospel of his kingdom being established. See, how do I know this? God chooses the foolish things of the world to make the wise, weak to shame the strong. He chooses the lowly to despise things. So in your life, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been walking with him for a while, you'll understand what I'm about to tell you. It's the weak parts of your life, the foolish parts of your life, through which God has worked to show you finally of who you are. And to show you who he is. Because God reverses the values of the world that you believed and trusted in so long. And transformed it inside of you to point to a God. I think A.W. Towser wrote this specifically for even for this. Where he said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Meaning God is it, in his infinite grace, in his sovereignty, can actually rise up storms of conflict in relationships and in times in order to accomplish the deeper work, even in our character. So if we suffer well, if we suffer and go through things, the world will need to know because our trust is still in Christ. See, the way that the world suffers is not the same way that we suffer. Our values are not from this world. Our values are from the kingdom of God. And how do I know this? The truth is that Jesus himself spoke of this. Because Jesus gets the hard things. Because he felt weakness. He felt deprivation. He felt grief. He felt rejection. But more than anyone else, he, he was infinitely high but born in a manger. Infinitely rich but he was born into a poor family. Jesus felt infinite joy and love through the Father and the Spirit. But he gave it all up. For you and I. Jesus gets it. There's great joy in that. There's great hope in that. But on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have forsaken me? Because Jesus, he knew the hard road. Yes, Jesus is your example. And he should be. And he will constantly be reversing the values in your heart. And once that happens, you know true transformation is taking place in you. Because Jesus ultimately knows when you are weeping because he wept in darkness. He knows the pain when he went to the dark places of the cross to be beat. Jesus knows death because he was able to rise and defeat it once and for all. And when you know Jesus is doing that for you, you'll be able to stand as in the book of Acts 7 and Stephen when he he was about to be executed that Jesus is Lord. This is the kingdom, guys. 
This is the kingdom value that Jesus came to establish here. So in God's kingdom, the way to riches is to give your wealth away. The way to be truly happy is not to care about your own happiness, but seek the happiness of others. And the way to real happiness is not to care about your own happiness, but the happiness of others. This is God's kingdom. This is the value that he calls for us to hold on to. And I think these are the values that the church of Smyrna understood so they could be fearless in the time of persecution and suffering. All right, that was just point one. Let's, go Let's get into our second one. Finding solace in a comforting God when we feel pain. Verse 9. <clears throat> I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, right? We just touched on that, the reversal. And the slanders of those who say that they are Jews and not, but a synagogue of Satan. You need to understand what's happening. There was two types of suffering and persecution that the church of Smyrna was going on. One, they decided we're not going to worship Caesar as Lord and King. We're not going to bow down to them, which cost them their job, their livelihood, which probably caused them to become poor, but also cost them their life. And then on top of that, there was these individuals who said that they were Jews, but they really weren't inwardly and outwardly. And they were outcasting the Christians that were there and telling the emperor, go, tell them, kill them. They're not worshiping Caesar at whatsoever. So we see them calling them out. So they're feeling all these pressures from this early church, these early Christians at that time. And they're feeling this persecution that was going on there. But what does that have to do with you and I? As I mentioned, Smyrna was filled with rich urbanites that probably caused them to go poor. And they finally lost everything, all the suffering and the death that was constantly coming. But look in that verse, verse 9. Right? What does Jesus say to the church when pain and suffering came? He said, I know. There's something about that. A God who is willing to step in your pain in your suffering, in your difficulties, in your struggles, a God that's willing to come over you, about to hug you and say, I know. I think there's importance to that and to hold that because that was so comforting even for the church of Smyrna. Hear me out, Christian or not, suffering remains the result of our broken world that's around us. Why? We're constantly faced with somebody coming with some terminal illness. Maybe a child with birth defects or unjust imprisonment or any other types of tragedies that are there. And, and the world tries to give its offer. And, and, and the scripture tells us something totally different. But the world tells us that if you're going through some kind of suffering right now, what do you do with the physical, emotional pain? They said go to the other things that would try to give you comfort. Go to the sexual infidelity. Go to the illegal drugs. Go to the gluttony. Go into sinful behavior because it will feel nice at the moment. That's what the world will say when pain comes. Or the other view, I think the church probably even takes this model, which I don't think is healthy, is we take the stoic view. We press it all down. We keep it down there. We don't release. We don't share or put out the, the, the tear that's needed or even allow God to come around us, comfort us by saying, I know. That's what he was telling to this church who was being persecuted at this time. God tells us that I know. 
Don't you want to hear that? I know I want to hear that. Isn't that what we want a friend or maybe a parent or a spouse or someone that's going through a difficult moment in our times? Maybe just for a moment, we just want somebody to come around us and say, I know. There was two times that I really, really cried, whatever that means. <laughs> it, was, it was an instance when my mom was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. And when I heard the news, it devastated me. Much anger, much grief, crying before the Lord. Because I knew the time was limited, what I had with her. It took a year before she passed away. And the next time that I actually shed a tear was actually at the gravesite. While standing there, we see the casket being lowered slowly. And I knew that was it. And I know at that moment is when I shed and started to cry. I don't know who, but a stranger or someone came behind me, kind of gave me a hug and said, I know. Even at that moment, why do I bring that up? Jesus says in verse 9, listen, I know that the Lord sees your broken heart. He knows your fear. He's not ignorant to those tears. He knows the tears that you shed for your marriage. He knows the tears that you shed for your wayward children. He knows the tears that you shed for your grandchildren. He knows the tears for the dreams that you have not come yet to be true. He knows of the diagnosis that's going on right now. He knows the fear that is trying to grip you at this moment. Jesus saying, I know. It's not going to remove the pain, but it's someone that could come draw close near to you. And that's what he was saying to this church in Smyrna. So even when we struggle with that in itself, we even battle with God because we say, God, I know I'm not perfect. God, I know I'm not getting things right. God, I know maybe I'm in the wrong. God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know you're far. God, I know in my heart of hearts, Lord, I'm trying. I'm trying to do everything that I can. I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to be good for my family for my church and my friends. I'm trying to repent. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to do all of these things of the desires that are in our hearts. And here's the thing. Jesus wants you to know not only that he knows, but who it is that knows. What he's trying to speak to you when he comes and comforts you when he says, I know. As this passage even spoke to the church itself, Jesus knows the hardship and the pain that we and I, we go through. If anyone knows, it's Jesus who knows. It may feel like all those tears that you shed in those tough times may feel like Jesus has abandoned you. Or if Jesus has forgotten you, as one author put it, he's never done that. He's actually stepped into your mess. How do I know this? When Jesus Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane, and when ultimate darkness was coming down on him, and he knew it was coming, he didn't abandon you. He died for you. If Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now in yours? Think about it. Do you believe that? Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So if a God is able to comfort us, that even though suffering is going to come, it may even end us. We trust in the God who keeps his promises. Look at verse 10. 
It says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Even for 10 days you have tribulation. But he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. A few words I want you to pay attention in this. One is this command that Jesus tells to the church. He says, do not fear. And then he continues to go on to say, be faithful. And then he continues to go on with his promise. He says, I will give you the crown of life and it will not hurt you anymore. What's going on? See, many of us, we think in the Christian life, it's like a movie where all of a sudden all of our suffering and pain will just disappear. That's not reality. It's going to be there. If you're going to feel it. Jesus isn't trying to sugarcoat hardship whatsoever or the pain and the struggles that come. Why? Why is that? Notice that there is no promise of an end to the suffering, only a reward for suffering. I see the Christians at that time, they had two choices. And when suffering and difficulties and pain comes in your life, you also have two choices. Either you could compromise and bow down to the false gods that are around you, or you could be faithful to King Jesus. And the church had a choice. Either they worship Caesar and they bow down to him, or they worship Jesus, knowing that it will cost them their jobs, it will cost them their life ultimately. And I think Jesus was telling this to the church and reminding them and telling them over and over again. And this is the thing when it comes to suffering. Part of the sting of suffering is the fear of suffering itself. Don't get me wrong. I'm scared of it. I'm sure everyone here is. It crosses our mind all the things that come at us. And I think sometimes we even get angry at God for all the suffering that we have faced. And then we sometimes look at other people and wonder, how are they not suffering? How are they blessed with so many different things? What's going on? See, we share, we fear suffering and what that is doing in our hearts. When we fear that, it's because we don't believe God is our Father who loves us and cares for us and shapes us. See, we will suffer and it will hurt, but Jesus will be there to always intercede for you, sympathize for you, even when you don't even have words and what exactly to say. Now, Calcis, Jesus continues on, right? He continues on with the second command. He says to what? Be faithful. Because the reality is that we will all suffer, but he will always tell us to be faithful in our hardship, faithful in our pains, faithful in our difficulties. And this is the thing. To be faithful means we believe in the promises of God. Suffering and temptation are linked. Tempted to disbelieve, disbelieve in God because we feel that we're constantly shipwrecked. We think all of that. We're tempted when suffering comes because we have a choice to be faithful with God or we compromise to his promises. So the enemy at that moment, Satan himself, even as Christ here has mentioned, he's going to come and he's going to tempt you when suffering comes. And then when that moment's come, he's going to constantly remind you, God doesn't love you. He is not sovereign. What will you do? Take courage, church. All of scripture, all of the New Testament, for all the early churches at the moment, what was the one thing? They prayed for boldness. Constantly. Bold means to be clear in the face of fear. 
So when people ask the hope that you have, your hope needs to be in Christ because his promises are there. Because he tells us two things. Do not be afraid and be faithful. And I think the church here was understanding that with the letter that Jesus was writing. And for us, even for us church, hear me on this, this quote. Because we ultimately know when suffering comes, even if it's going to cost our life, even if it's going to take us out from this world, we know that our citizenship is not here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And one quoter, I forgot who the author is, he said, in the face of suffering, a deep understanding of Christians' heavenly citizenship is necessary. The gospel speaks directly to the oppressed and suffering believers, showing them that the way to live and act in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. When believers understand their ultimate belonging is with Christ in the heavenly places. The way they interact with the world will necessarily change. So as I invite the worship team as they come up here and as we come to a close. I found this interpretation of Matthew 16 quite interesting. And I'll explain why I go there. In Matthew 16, Jesus this is the famous where he's standing on the rock, Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I am? And at that moment, many said to Jesus, Well, I think you're John the Baptist. I think you're Elijah. And Jesus stops them and says, Who do you think that I am? And Peter basically tells him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17 of that passage, he said, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I heard somebody point this out, and I found this quite interesting. Think about our interpretation of gates. In the phrase where it says, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, has always typically been of offense. We often think of gates, if anything, as a defensive structure. It doesn't say the swords or the machine guns of hell. It specifically mentions gates. Gates are meant to protect. So what Jesus here is conveying for me and you and for all of us, here is his kingdom. My kingdom is established. We are meant always to be on offense, not on defense. We have been called by the kingdom and the power of Christ to break through the gates of hell. The church was called to live fiercely in a world that is constantly gripped by fear and scare. In other words, the gates of hell cannot stop the church from advancing, from taking back the territory that was once lost at the fall of Adam and Eve. Our role now is to push back the gates of hell, not to hunker down or try to prevent the gates of hell from pushing us, us down. So when you think about that, that changes your perspective. Because we are on the offense. We are not on the defense. Satan and his enemies have no hold on us. The devil put the gates there because he knows the church is alive. He knows the church is fearless. Will we believe in that? 
do you hold to that? I think that's what the suffering church understood. That even to the point of death itself, they said, no, we have a king. And the king tells us we're going to get a crown. And in that crown, we will have everlasting life. That's the kingdom. Do you believe in that kingdom? Do you believe in those values? Do you believe that is true? And not only that, think about this. The church of Smyrna, when you translate it from the Greek into with the true meaning, it actually means myrrh. And myrrh was the main expert in that city itself. And then when you look at it, myrrh was frequently used in the Bible always for those who have died to cover the smell that's needed. Myrrh represented death and persecution that we see in the church. And the thing for myrrh is that it needed to be crushed for its fragments of smell to come out. And here's the beauty in this. The suffering church, the persecuted church had to be crushed just as your Savior had to be crushed. So that as he was crushed, the fragments of his beauty, of his majesty, of his holiness, of his glory, his aroma now spreads out. So church, as you will be crushed when you're faced with suffering, when you're faced with difficulty, those things will come at you. Will you remain faithful? Will you be reminded where Christ said, do not be afraid. Can you hold on to the truth of the value of the kingdom of God? Not the religion, but the kingdom, which is around the domain of the king, King Jesus. So church, my prayer now for one life here, for us as a church, I pray that simply that we are not just called to a patient endurance when we're faced with suffering, but with the call to suffer, there's an accompanying promise that comes, a reward that comes, that proves to those who remain faithful. But faithful unto who? Jesus. Because Jesus in this letter points to us that we can find hope. Because if you find strength in yourself, you will lose. But if you find strength in Christ, you know that Christ, he is eternal. He is the first and the last. He himself is victorious. Where men live and die, Christ died and now he lives. Christ is omniscient. He knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your difficulty. He knows your tribulation that's going through. Christ himself, he said he is sovereign. Meaning that he limits the suffering. He controls all the events. He may allow the devil to permit something to happen to be for us to test it. Because he knows that we, ourselves, will be faithful and not afraid. And he will say that he is gracious to you. Christ is saying he is gracious because he promises you and I, those who trust in Christ, the crown of life, the crown which consists eternal life, a protection from the second death. What do I mean by the second death? That though we may die here physically, we would never die in the second death spiritually. Church, we are called to a scared world to be a fearless church. And how do we become fearless? When we're faced with suffering, difficulties, and challenges in life, hold to the promises of God, hold to the kingdom, because our life is around the king and his dominion. May Jesus get the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. One Life Christian Church is located in Baldwin, New York. To find out more about the church, visit us at www.onelifeli.com.